of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 36. I want to talk about the Mideast crisis this morning and what it means to us as Christians. Uh, actually, I, I already have the sermon short completed. It's in the uh, rack back there, so if any of you need to leave early, you can uh, just pick one up. Someone uh, suggested this morning, if I'd known that, I could have given you a call and you could have just mailed it to me. It's high time we uh, did some hard thinking about that crisis and what it means to us as Christians. War seems to be uh, looming. Human lives are at stake. Some of you are integrally involved. Some of you are pilots with the Guard or at Mountain Home, or support personnel. Some of your friends, loved ones, may have already left for uh, the Mideast. Certainly the world economy is uh, affected. Stocks are down. Petroleum prices are up. Uh, Economists don't seem to know what's up or down. Uh, I was watching, I think it was 2020 or 60 Minutes last uh, week, and there were four economists on the program, none of which could agree. Someone has suggested that an economist is the only person who can make a living always being wrong. Uh, History may prove us all wrong, but the present crisis appears to be one of near-apocalyptic proportions. You know, is this just a blip in history, or is this the big one? I've noticed the radio preachers are making much of the fact that uh, this is happening in the Middle East, where so much of the Old Testament is centered. Uh, the uh, Iraq is actually located right in the center of the ancient uh, Middle East, the area of the world uh, around which much of Old Testament prophecy centers. And so the question is, what is it that's going on? Is this the end of the age? Is this the end of the American way of life as we know it? Is this the end of my life? What can we say about what's happening in the Middle East? I read with some awe the opening words of the chairman of the first global conference on the future held in Ontario, Canada a few months ago. The bad news, he says, is that the end of the world is coming. The good news is not yet. But this decade is going to be the most important in human history. If we don't make the right decisions, the odds of us going beyond this decade are slim. The danger of war and the collapse of Western civilization is a very real possibility. The world's thinking very seriously about this issue, and we as Christians need to think seriously about it, think through our Christian response. In order to do so, I I want to have us all learn a little history. Someone has said, if we don't learn the lessons of history, we're doomed to repeat them. Uh, History has meaning, has significance. History has always fascinated me, not the dates and the people and the events and the nations so much as the meaning of history. Where is history going and what does history mean? There are a lot of different theories. Some see history as cyclical, much like... uh, an eternal lazy Susan. What goes around comes around. The same events keep occurring over and over again. The Greeks thought of history as cyclical. Uh, Oswald Spengler, the old Prussian historian, thought of history that way. 
Uh, nations are doomed to rise and fall. Less sort of like mayflies. For those of you that are fishermen or entomologists, they uh, they hatch and they they die and that they fulfill their their cycle. So history doesn't have any meaning. It just goes round and round and round where it stops. Nobody knows. Uh, if you've read anything of Arnold Toynbee, his theory of history is that history is a straight line. Going nowhere, but nevertheless a straight line. Nations respond to challenges and they evolve. Each nation emerges into the next nation or the next civilization. And history is a long line with no end. It's just pointless. Uh, Most existentialists would agree that history is a tale told by an idiot signifying nothing. And a lot of us would probably agree that history doesn't seem to teach us anything. Uh, Henry Ford is famous for having said history is bunk. He said, if I ever want to learn anything about history, I'll hire a history professor. But we've, we've got to do better than that. We have to think through the meaning of history. What does it mean for us as Christians? And there is in Scripture a very clear philosophy of history. Now, I want you to turn back to Isaiah 36 and 37 with me because there is... This is one place in the Old Testament where a theory of history is spelled out. Uh, You might be surprised to discover that there's a narrative section in the center of a prophetic book. Chapters 36 through 39 actually duplicate some of the historical sections of 2 Kings. And without going into a lot of detail, I simply want to say that the book of Isaiah is divided into two major segments. There's chapters 1 through 35 and chapters 40 through 66. And the historical section in the center is what prepares us, and more specifically, prepared Israel for the exile that was yet to come. Isaiah lived in the 8th century B.C. He predicted the Babylonian captivity, which was in the 6th century B.C. B.C. He began 586. And uh, this uh, historical section is the bridge between the uh, statements of judgment that occur in the first 35 chapters and the promise of hope that's yet to come. I'm not going to try to explain that at this point, except to say that's why you have this historical section in the middle. Now, let me give you a little history. As Carolyn says, I'm inclined to get historical. Uh, So, and some of you could care less about history, but I need to give you a little bit of background and tell you what's going on. Uh, We're talking about the 8th century B.C. It's a long time ago, 2,700, 2,800 years ago. Um, Assyria was the dominant power in the Middle East. Ironically, Iraq now is right in the center of what was then the Assyrian uh, Empire. The Assyrians uh, had all of the, what we would call the Middle East, the Near East today, they had conquered Palestine, Egypt, um, Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Lebanon, all of those nations, even into parts of Turkey. They were the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. When Hezekiah uh, was the king, uh, Sennacherib, the king of Judah, Sennacherib was the Assyrian king, quite a famous fellow. A lot of his uh, war annals are still uh, obtainable today. There's a large uh, relief in in the London Museum. If you ever go there, you'll see it, in which he chronicles his war crimes, we would say today. He's very proud of himself, but a very cruel, vicious man. One of the monsters of, of history. 
Just prior to the writing of this section or the events that are described in this section, the Judeans, Judah was just a little tiny province of Assyria and on the southern part of what today is the country of Israel. Jerusalem was the capital, probably 50 or so cities scattered around the city, around the city of Jerusalem, made up the nation of Judah. Hezekiah had rebelled against Assyria, against the advice of Isaiah. Isaiah kept saying, don't do it. Assyria is God's instrument to purify the nation, to chasten the nation and to set things right. Don't rebel against Assyria. But Hezekiah followed the same policy of his father Ahaz, and he did rebel. He joined in a rebellion with the Egyptians and the Phoenicians and the Philistines and the Edomites and the Moabites and a bunch of other people that lived in that area, and they rebelled against Assyria. Well, for a time, the Assyrians were busy with their, their own problems. They were fighting skirmishes on the, to the north and the east of the empire. Finally, he took care of that problem, and he turned to the west, and he just decimated that rebel- the, the cities that formed that rebellion. Marched south down the Mediterranean, destroyed the city of Tyre, which was thought to be invulnerable at that time, destroyed the Philistine Pentapolis, Ashdod, Eshkelon, all those cities down uh, to the southern part of the, the Mediterranean plain there, uh, and then turned toward Jerusalem. And he says in his records in the London Museum, British Museum actually, says in his record, I destroyed 46 Judean cities. That's almost all the cities in Judah. His policy was to leave behind scorched earth. He destroyed the cities, leveled them, sowed salt in the fields, ruined the, the fields so they could no longer raise any crops, and deported a quarter of a million people into Assyria. Just decimated the countryside. Little Jerusalem was left. It's the only city that was left. Hezekiah says in his history, I shut up Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. Just little Jerusalem. With their tiny little army. No chariots, no cavalry, no heavy weapons. They were just in the city of Jerusalem, all buttoned up, waiting for the end to come. That's where the story begins. Verse 36, chapter 36, verse 1. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign... If anybody cares, that's 701 B.C. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. When the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, who's actually the prime minister of Judah, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. These were three members of Hezekiah's cabinet, the ranking members of, of his cabinet. They went out to meet the uh, field general of this Assyrian uh, contingent. This was not the entire army. The entire army numbered hundreds of thousands, and they were besieging the city of Lachish at this time. They reduced the city, moved on to another city called Libna that he will refer to in a moment. And uh, uh, Sennacherib sent a small contingent ahead. They surrounded the city, put it under siege, uh, kept them from getting any support from outside, held the city for a period of time, and then he agreed to parley with Hezekiah and with members of his cabinet. Hezekiah did not go because the kings in those days dealt with kings. These were lesser figures, and so he sent the three top people in his administration, and they met just outside the walls, down on the southwest side of the city of Jerusalem. I kind of have to get the picture in mind. 
Here are these three cabinet members. Sennacherib was, uh, Sennacherib's uh, emissary was probably standing on the other side of the Kidron Valley, shouting over to them. There was probably some intervening distance. And the people were up on the walls of Jerusalem, as many as could gather up there, listening to every word. Now, there are two speeches that the Rabshakas, as he's called, the field officer, delivered. The first is, it, it, it centers around the idea of confidence. In whom do you trust? See, Hezekiah had made preparations for the siege. He, he drove a tunnel under the city to bring water into the city. He stopped up all the wells and springs in that part of Judah. He had refortified the city, built the walls higher, built the towers higher. He felt that he was fairly safe within his walled city. Oh, yeah, and he also trusted God. You know, sort of in God we trust, but you know, we also got to have the missiles. And uh, so he, the city was well fortified, and he was still sort of thinking Egypt was going to come to their help. As history revealed, history, uh, Egypt was no help at all. They were utterly destroyed by the Assyrian uh, army in a matter of weeks. So um, this man is... He's concerned about the things that Hezekiah is confident in. What are you putting your trust in? And that word trust in Hebrew occurs over and over and over again in this first speech. Um, Verse 4, verse 5, verse 7, verse 9, you'll see it. It's translated variously. This confidence of yours on whom are you depending. Look now, you're depending. If you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God. Then in verse 9, you're depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen. All has to do with who you're, who are you trusting? Whom are you trusting? See? That's the issue. Now what he says, in essence, is if you trust in Egypt, she's like a broken reed. If you lean on her, she will pierce your hand. If you trust in the Lord, uh, he can't help you. If you trust in Hezekiah, he can't help you. You are doomed. And they were. They were. Um, the, the cabinet members say, Whoa, shh, don't speak in Hebrew. Because the people on the walls can hear you. Speak in Aramaic. Aramaic was the language of the courts. The formal language of diplomacy. So we understand Aramaic. Let's talk Aramaic so they can't hear you. The field general says, I'll choose a language I choose. So he continues to speak in Hebrew. Everybody up and down the walls hears what he has to say. Now his second speech uh, begins in verse 13, and it's centered around the word deliver. That word deliver or save uh, occurs over and over again. And uh, he says, if you, again, if you're counting on Egypt to deliver you, there's no help there. If you're counting on Hezekiah to deliver you, there's no help there. This is not the man for the job. If you're counting on the Lord to deliver you, verse 18, don't be deceived. Don't let Hezekiah mislead you when he says the Lord will deliver you. Because no God has yet delivered uh, its people from the hand of the Assyrian. Uh, you notice how he puts it. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? These are all cities that the, that the, that the Assyrians had, had destroyed. Where are the gods of uh, Sepharvaim? We don't know where these places are, but there were cities that were destroyed by, by the Assyrians. And what he's saying is don't trust your God because the gods of the other cities proved impotent and, and ineffective. So the... Three members of the cabinet were told in verse 22, tore their clothes. That's a sign of, of uh, despair. 
And they went back and told Hezekiah what the field commander had said. Hezekiah well knew what he'd said. He was up on the walls, I'm sure, listening with the rest of the people. So these uh, three fellows went home and telephoned their brokers and had all of their funds put in a money market. And, uh, or, or they bought gold or they started making plans for the, for the future. They knew that it was all over. Chapter 37, verse 1. Hezekiah sends word to Isaiah, but before he does, we're told that he tore his clothes. And he put on sackcloth and went into the temple of his Lord. Now, that's a very significant verse because it indicates that Hezekiah repented of his folly. Hezekiah had been dependent upon Egypt all along, trying to resist the Assyrians. Isaiah told him, wrong strategy. It's not the, not the thing to do. Trust God. Depend wholly on God to do as he will. And at this point, Hezekiah repented of his sin. And he went into the temple and prostrated himself before God. Asked for his forgiveness. And he sent a letter off to Isaiah, his prophet, whom, who had been telling him for years to submit to the Assyrians and not become a part of this of this revolt, and finally he capitulated. He said to, said to Isaiah, uh, verse uh, 2, this, this is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace. It's when children come to the point of birth and there's no strength to deliver them. Very powerful figure. Very often children were, uh, they were breech-born. Uh, and uh, mother would, would struggle uh, for hours or days to give birth, and the child could not give. She couldn't not give birth to the child. And she would die. And of course, the child would die. That's the figure that he's employing here. We're in that situation. Uh, we, we're in an impossible situation. We can't. We're all going to die. And uh, this is a time, he says, of terrible disgrace for the people of God. It may be that the Lord, your God, will hear the words of the field commander. Now, the the series of of interchanges, exchanges that occur from this point on all revolve around this word hear. Occurs seven or eight times. Maybe God will hear. Maybe your God will hear. It's the way he puts it and he uses a singular pronoun. Your God, Isaiah, your God. I think Hezekiah was so, uh, he was so uh, nonplussed by his disobedience and feeling that God couldn't care about him anymore, that he was afraid to refer to God as his God. But he knew Isaiah was a man of God, and so he appeals to Isaiah to appeal to God, to listen to what, what the king of Assyria was saying. He's ridiculed the living God, and perhaps he'll rebuke him for the words, the Lord, your God, again, singular pronoun, has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant that survives. That's this little bunch of Jews that were hiding behind the walls of the city of Jerusalem. It just looked like the end was very, very near. Um, Isaiah sends word to Hezekiah, verse 5. When Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Tell your master, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you have heard. These words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have, have blasphemed me. The word that's translated underlings in the New International Version is literally boys in Hebrew. 
he's saying these flunkies, these youngsters that head up a serious army, they don't take their words seriously. Listen to the word of God. That's where our confidence comes from. He says, listen, verse 7, listen to me. Listen to the news reports. I am putting a spirit in him so that when he hears a certain report, he will turn to his own city, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. Well, let me tell you what happened. Sennacherib uh, reduced the city of uh, Lachish to rubble, and then he went on to Libna. And while he was besieging the city of Libna, he heard a report from some of uh, his people down south that the Egyptians were on the march. And so he turned away from Libna in order to, uh, to meet this assault from the south. He went all the way down into, uh, into Egypt. And so Jerusalem got a reprieve. He needed his army. He sent word to this little contingent of Assyrians that were surrounding the city of Jerusalem, and they joined him down uh, on their march to Egypt. And he sends a letter back. He says, don't think you're going to get away for very long. This is just, uh, you know, this is the mouse that roared down south. In a matter of time, we're going to be back to Jerusalem. So your end is still just, just as certain as it was before. In the meantime, Isaiah after he gets this letter, goes to the temple, and he gets down on his face, and he begins to pray, verse 15. Oh, verse 16. Oh, Lord Almighty, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give here, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these peoples in their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. But they're not gods. They're only wood and stone, fashioned by human hands. Now, O Lord our God, deliver us from his hands so that all the kingdoms on the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. You see, that's why God does what he does. That's why he raises up one nation and puts down another. It's so the world will know that God is God. doesn't do it for our good. doesn't do it to line our pockets. doesn't do it to feather our nest. doesn't do it so we can be more at ease and more affluent, more at peace, and enjoy our material Goods. It's not why God does what he does. He does what he does that the world may see that he is God alone. Now that's not a philosophy of history you're going to hear in, in most classrooms or read in most history books. It's better. Verse 21. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. Uh, apparently, precise identification of Isaiah was important. That's why he describes him as the son of Amos, because he wants Hezekiah to know that this is the authentic prophet. This is the man who speaks for God. Isaiah had already been authenticated by predicting the future, the fulfillment of which uh, you know, it came true, and so he was credentialed as a prophet. Now, whatever he has to say uh, is truth. Listen. Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, this is God speaking now, 
This is the word the Lord has spoken against him. The virgin daughter of Zion despises and mocks you. The daughter of Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee. I used to have to stop and think what was going on in Jerusalem. This description here, the virgin daughter of Zion and the daughter of Jerusalem, is a reference to the city of Jerusalem. These people were under siege. The end was near. Hundreds of thousands of Assyrians were ready to march against the city. Isaiah is a very colorful figure. He says, and I'll just put it bluntly, the way Isaiah puts it. Jerusalem is like a lovely young virgin that is about to be raped. And she sticks out her tongue at her attacker. She derides him. She makes fun of him. She scoffs at him. Who is this Sennacherib that dares to defy the living God? Who is it, he says in verse 23, you have insulted and blasphemed against you, against whom you have raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride against the Holy One of Israel? See, the issue was not Jerusalem and her protection. It was the fact that God himself had been insulted by your messengers, that is, these flunkies, these lackeys, these boys that he had sent to represent him. You have heaped insults on the Lord and you have said with many chariots, I myself, the text underscores the self-assertion of this man. I myself have, have ascended the heights of the mountains, the utmost heights of Lebanon. This is Sennacherib speaking. I have cut down its tallest cedars, the choicest of its pines. I have reached its remotest heights, the finest of its, of its forests. I myself have dug wells in foreign lands and drunk the water there with the soles of my feet, I dried up all the streams of Egypt, a reference, of course, to the Exodus and what God had done before. Sennacherib said, I, I've done all that. I've conquered all these nations. I'm the one that's brought terror to the, the whole world as a result of the power of my army. Listen to this. Verse 26. This is God speaking to Sennacherib, the great king. Have you not heard? Long ago, I ordained it. In days of old, I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you, Sennacherib, have turned fortified cities into piles of stone. Their people drained of power, are dismayed and put to shame. They are like plants in the field, like tender green shoots, like grass sprouting on the housetops, scorched before it grows up. Here's Sennacherib uh, raving about his power, and God says, Sennacherib, I did it. Your conquests were my conquests. I planned it a long time ago. As a matter of fact, you go back to chapter 8 of Isaiah, and Isaiah predicted to Ahaz, who was uh, Hezekiah's father, that the Assyrian army would invade the north, and they would destroy the capital of the north, Samaria, and they did that in 721 just uh, 20 years before this event occurred. And then Isaiah went on to say, Assyria will flood into the south, into Judah, and it will inundate the country up to your neck. But no further. It's as far as they'll go. And that's precisely what happened historically. Sennacherib destroyed all the little Judean cities. He encamped around Jerusalem, besieged it. The waters flowed right up to Judah's neck, but no further. She didn't drown. 
God didn't take her away. Because you see, God has always had a purpose through Israel, through a remnant. People whose roots were, had been put down into God through that remnant to bring salvation to the world. And ultimately, the king would come from the line of Judah, who is our Lord Jesus, who would make salvation for the whole world. God had promised Abraham, your seed will not be extinguished until Messiah comes, the one who brings peace. So for the sake of God's promises, for the sake of his people, for the sake of the salvation of world, of the world, God says, you're going to flow, and he says this to Sennacherib, you're, you're, you're going to flow into Jerusalem, and you'll make a lot of trouble for them, and it will look like the end, and you'll flow right up to their neck. But that's as far as you're going to go. You know what happened? Isaiah goes on to tell us a story. You can read it on your own. Sennacherib and his army marched south to meet the Egyptians. They defeated the Egyptians. They were camped on the delta, the Nile Delta. They were getting ready to return to Jerusalem to continue the siege of that city. And one morning, Sennacherib got up and he looked out over his army and 186,000 men had died during the night. That fact is not only confirmed by Scripture, it's confirmed by Herodotus, the Greek uh, historian, who said that they were invaded by mice. It's probably a bubonic plague or some other plague that these mice carried. And the army was decimated. And Sennacherib never made it to Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, his uh, records indicate that, uh, that he, just, he just went home in disgrace. And 20 years later, 20 years later, he was worshiping in his temple. Isaiah, with some fine irony, mentions the fact that he was worshiping his God in his temple in contrast to the God that Hezekiah worshipped. And his sons killed him. And another of his sons took the throne. That's actually found in, in the Assyrian record. You can read that too. His, his grandson punished the men who killed his grandfather, Sennacherib, by beating them to death with the idols that he was worshiping. And I, you know, I couldn't help but chuckle, I mean, not, not at the tragedy, but at the thought behind that. The idols couldn't do anything to protect, protect uh, the one who worshiped them, so uh, his grandson took the idols and used them as instruments to mete out death to those that had had killed his grandfather. And Assyria was never again a threat to Judah. Babylon later became a great threat, but Assyria was finished. They never again marched west. Why? Who did this? Who planned this? Who said you'll go so far and, and no further? God did. See, this tells me that God is in control of the events of history. He is sovereign. Our God rules. I've said before, there are no maverick molecules out there in the universe, and there are no mavericks, period. Everything is under his control. The, the, the picture that we have in the book of Revelation is that God's throne is located on a sea of glass. No anxiety. God's in control. He even permits these so-called monsters of history to come into being and he directs their activity. He even permits them to 
to wreak havoc on the earth because he has a greater purpose in mind. People like Adolf Hitler and Idi Amin and, and Nikolai Kocheska and Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein is where he is today because God has permitted. God does not create evil. He makes that very clear. But he permits evil men to come into power and to use their power in order to afflict the earth because he has a greater purpose in mind than our pleasure. Now, I, I want you to turn to one other passage. Would you turn with me, please, to Acts 17? Whoops. My pulpit is falling apart here. Acts 17. Stumbled across this verse one day, and it struck me that this is a, a wonderful uh, synopsis of the biblical philosophy of history. Verse 26, Acts 17, 26. Paul is the speaker. He's engaged in debate with the philosophers in Athens. You would expect to find a statement like this in that particular exchange. From one man... That is, Adam, God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. Now listen to this. He determined the times set for them. He will determine the time set for Iraq. He will determine the time set for the United States of America. He's the one that establishes the limits of our expansion, the exact places where they should live. Iraq will go only as far as God wants them to go and no further. The United States will only go as far as God determines she shall go and no further. Why? Verse 27, this is the meaning of history. This is the mystery of history. This is what you're not going to find in the textbooks. God did this so that men would seek him. And perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from each one of us. Do you understand what he's saying? There's more at stake than our happiness, our peace, our affluence, the good things, the good life. What God is doing is drawing men and women to himself. He's raising up a remnant of people that are called by his name. I didn't mention it back in Isaiah 36, but in the midst of this description of the destruction of the Assyrians, there's a little pearl. He says... uh, you're going to uh, be able to gather what falls of itself this year and next year. And the next year, you'll be able to plant and sow, and you'll be able to sow and reap and harvest. In other words, he's saying in three years, everything will, will, will return to normal. And then he uses that agricultural figure to talk about the people of God. He says the remnant, that is the believing folk, the people that have put their roots down into God, the people that really take God seriously and who are dependent upon him will put roots down and they'll bear fruit up. And that's what God has been about all along. All through human history, his concern has been to create a remnant, a people of God who love him and who know him and whose roots are way down into uh, into him and who are bearing fruit wherever they go. And that's what history is all about. That's why he brings nations into being. That's why he... Raises them up, puts them down. It's why he permits disorder and chaos and conflict to uh, 
to continue. And then when the time comes, he puts that nation down and he raises up another one and he permits uh, these demagogues and tyrants to exist for a time. And then he puts them down for the greater good that God's glory may be known, that people may know he's the only God, that men and women and children will be drawn to Jesus and find their rest in him. Talk to the people who went to Romania and the other Eastern European countries this year about what God did in those countries when they were under the hand of these cruel oppressors. The church has grown as it grew in no other part of the world where we have freedom to express ourselves because God is after this greater thing, which is the production of, of a remnant. And, and, and all, all of these conflicts, speed, are designed to speed the progress of the gospel. Let me give you an illustration, just a quick one. Alexander the Great, sort of a hero to us today, but if you know anything about his conquests, he was a cruel, rapacious man. Egocentric. He wanted to, to possess the world. He was an alcoholic, as best we know. He was a wretch. Why did God permit Alexander the Great to conquer the world? He created an enormous amount of distress, bloodshed, wherever he went. Well, historians that are in the know describe Alexander's conquest in terms of what they call a semantic conquest. He spread the Greek language all over the world so that everybody uh, spoke Greek or understood Greek. The Romans followed the Greek Empire. The Romans were some of the cruelest people that ever lived. Their legions marched all over the Middle East, destroying civilizations and cities and people and left behind the hard, cruel uh, Roman legionnaires who ruled with an iron Iron fist. What happened? Well, uh, what historians call the Pax Romani, the peace of Rome. Nobody wanted to fool around with the Romans, so there was peace, and people could travel across borders, travel anywhere in the Roman world, the Roman Empire. And uh, they're even safe from bandits because the Roman legions made certain that the roads were safe. And uh, they used slave labor to build their road system all over the, all over the world, network of roads that linked together the entire the Middle East. Those are the very roads that Christians use to proclaim the gospel all over the Roman Empire. Paul would never have made it to the West if it weren't for what the Roman Empire did. And uh, he could uh, speak Greek and everybody could understand him. And Who did all that? God did. Because he has the greater purpose, you see, of drawing men and women to himself. And so it is with us. What's happening over there? No one knows, but God knows. He's not biting his nails and pacing the floor and wondering what's going to happen to the price of crude. He could care less. (laughs) He doesn't care. And neither should we. Instead of worrying about what's happening at the pumps, we need to be worrying about what's happening with people. Their hearts, distress, agonizing times for people. Human lives are on the line and will be lost. Families are being ripped apart. People's fortunes are being decimated. But these things shouldn't bother us, shouldn't worry us. We know who we are. We're we're sons of God, all of us. We know what our destiny is. It's fixed. We're going to our Father's house. So they kill us. What's the big deal? It just means an entrance into more of God, having more of all that he's promised to us. In the meantime, we have a duty, which is to make the most of the opportunity because, as Paul puts it, the times are evil. Evil times are times of opportunity. The more perilous, the more 
precarious things become, the more people's hearts are open to the gospel. They're looking. They're desperately looking. They want to know him. They're seeking for him. And as Paul puts it in Acts 17, he's not very far away. He's as close as their mouth, as close as their heart. All they have to do is open their mouth and confess Jesus as Lord and he'll come into their hearts and he'll make peace. Oh, the Mideast may be in turmoil. There may be war, and there will be, as Jesus said, war until he comes back. There will be war and rumor of war, but people are going to have peace in their heart. That's what history is all about. Let's pray. Let's prepare our hearts for this time around the Lord's table. I didn't mention it when we were looking at the Isaiah passage. Um, But uh, Isaiah gave Hezekiah a sign. He said, uh, this year you're going to eat the volunteer wheat that falls. Next year there'll be more wheat. It'll grow of itself. The third year you'll be able, able to sow it. That was a sign to Hezekiah that God was going to take care of things, even though it was hard times, God would take care of them. We've got a sign, too. It's, it's the Lord's table. Hezekiah looked forward to the deliverance. We look back. We look back. That's the sign. This table around which we gather, which is the sign of the new covenant in Christ's blood, it reminds us again what he did. He made peace between us and God and no one not Mr. Hussein no one else in history can destroy that peace he made everlasting peace so as as we share together this table let's remember that sign Lord thank you for this reminder again that history is meaningful it's not a tale told by an idiot it signifies something signifies your faithfulness to your people. We know that you're, you're working, even when it seems that, that your hands are tied, in order to direct and control and sort out the events of history to accomplish this greater purpose that you have in mind. We just want to be faithful during these times. As our friends are shaken and rattled, and anxious, fear-ridden, grief-stricken. Help us to know how to speak a word in season to those that are weary. Set our own hearts at, at ease and at peace so that we can walk through these perilous times with poise, and with strength, with tranquility. And now as we uh, share this um, table, remind us that, that nothing can really touch us. The, all of the forces of hell itself were directed against you on that cross and you defeated death and Hades and you have proven that victory by coming out of the grave and now we walk with you as eternal sons of God without fear for the future. Keep that thought on our mind as we share this time together. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.